Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 25th, 2016, and my guest is David Otter, professor of economics at MIT. David specializes in labor economics and has been a guest on Econ Talk twice before discussing disability and the future of work. Today, we're going to be talking about his work with Gordon Hansen and David Dorn and others on the effect of trade with China on U.S. labor markets and U.S. workers. David, welcome back to Econ Talk. Uh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be back on the show. Your work on China was recently mentioned in a recent Econ Talk episode with Adam Ozimek as an example of a paper or papers which had empirical research in it that caused him to change his mind. The issue was the flexibility of U.S. labor markets and the effects of trade on the lives of workers. And you were convinced him that trade with China has been much harder on U.S. workers and the adjustments are much slower, uh, that the effects last for a long time. So we're going to talk about that work, uh, but I want to start where you start at the beginning of your recent paper, The China Shock, with how the economics profession has looked at these issues. And there's been something of a consensus for a while that maybe is is in the process of changing. But I want to start with the standard arguments that people have held for a while about about free trade. So talk about what the assumptions have been that economists have worked under the priors they have about the impact of trade on uh, welfare, the well-being of of workers generally, and particularly workers maybe in areas that are competing directly with with foreign imports. Sure. So the uh, the basic argument for free trade, an argument that I support, is that a free trade allows uh, countries to specialize in what they're good at, and uh, and uh, by specializing that, they can sell those goods to the rest of the world and buy from the rest of the world the things that other countries are good at. So you know, rather than be uh, you know, do all my cooking and do all my cleaning and, you know, make my own car and sew my own clothes and, and then go teach an economics class. I, you know, I'm engaged in exchange with uh, people within the world, within the U.S. and outside the U.S. And I focus on the thing I'm especially good at and trade for the rest. And so that's the uh, general principle of comparative advantage. And, and that's uh, it's, it's much it's as much true as it is between people, as it is between countries or between firms within a country. And uh, and. Almost any conventional economic theory, including the ones I subscribe to, will tell you that that's going to improve aggregate welfare. The ability to uh, to focus on your comparative advantage uh, makes all uh, countries better off in aggregate. So, and if it didn't, they would have no reason to trade. So, if they couldn't somehow get a better deal by making one thing and uh, producing one thing, trading with another country, and getting the thing that country produces, they wouldn't do so. So, in aggregate, uh, trade is uh, uh, growth enhancing, increases the total output of countries, and there are other long-term benefits as well. It increases, improves the competitive landscape, it improves a variety of products and services available. And uh, it helps lots of countries grow and experience and benefit from the sort of technologies and innovations and variety of great stuff made around the world. So there's a very strong case for trade in general. Um, and, yep, go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask, I just want to put a footnote in because, you know, a number of our listeners probably have taken or are taking 
an economics class that talks about comparative advantage, uh, but many of them have not, and many have a sort of general idea of what the term means. And I, I just want to not so much correct what you said, but perhaps give a different way of looking at it and let you uh, expand on that. One of the challenges is, uh, I think you phrased it, you should specialize in what you're especially good at. That That's not really a meaningful statement. Uh, you meant a lot of things in the background when you said that. Um, so there are a lot of things I'm really good at. Uh, for example, um, there's a game my father played as a young boy called Corkball, where you, you flip a cork underhand and hit it with a handle of a broomstick uh, and akin to baseball. I'm very good at pitching corkball. I have some great pitches. My drop is really spectacular. Uh, but that's not a good thing to specialize in because it's not just – there's no absolute way to compare the things I'm good at across uh, activities. And, of course, even if I'm really good, at, if we could think of a way to do that, if we had, for example – a time measure of how long it took me to do certain things and I could do them quicker than other people, that's not enough for that to be the thing I specialize in. No, so the no, way agreed. I, the way I think about it is I should get the things in my life as cheaply as possible. And one of the ways to buy stuff cheap, to get stuff cheaply is to buy it from other people. And to do that, you have to have resources. Uh, and so I specialize in things that allow me to buy things that I couldn't otherwise produce cheaply by not trying to produce them myself, by letting other people produce them. And then in turn, the things that I can do, here's I'm getting in the trouble with the language, that I could do relatively well, meaning the things that I can do more cheaply for other people than they can do for themselves, they're happy to pay me to do those things. So I think yeah, one of the challenges... Yeah, I agree. I mean, just to embellish your cork board, cork, cork ball example, if there was a, you know, a, a major uh, cork ball uh, fan base... Uh, that was, you know, paying for television rights and so on and paying to come out to games and you were really good at it, you would specialize in corkball for a living and uh, you would, you know, you would hire other people to, uh, you know, to build your house for you and to clean and cook for you, for example. Uh, and so what makes it, when I say, you know, what your, what your comparative advantage is, it really means like what you can produce that the market wants, you know, cheaply or better than others can. That's what your comparative advantage is in a market economy. And then, of course, you buy from the people who produce it more cheaply and better than you. Uh, they're focusing on their comparative advantage. And the example I like to use, uh, probably used this a few years back, is is Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick, the coach of the New England Patriots, uh, was an economics major. Uh, and I think he's very – probably very good at economics. He really understands tradeoffs in building an NFL roster, which is very, very challenging. And perhaps that's actually what he does better than anything else. Uh, in, in conjunction with this general manager. But if he had been living in 1930, when the NFL I don't think existed yet, I think the NFL came into existence in the 30s or 40s. So if he had been ex in, if he had been an adult at the time when the NFL didn't exist, his comparative advantage wouldn't be coaching. <laughs> it doesn't make mm. any sense. So exactly. it's a complicated, it's not, uh, it, it, it changes with your opportunities, with the prices and wages that you face, et cetera. So it's it's an incredibly subtle concept. I just like to I just mention that because we teach it typically as a two by two matrix that I think masks the richness of the idea and um, the emergent nature of it. Absolutely. And there's another point that you hit on that also will become important in our discussion, which is that uh, it's crucially about prices 
And one of the things that trade does when you, when nations trade is it changes prices. So the thing that you're quote best at under one set of prices, let's say that thing is, uh, it may not be the thing you're best at in another set of prices because the value of that thing that you're good at, that you have, you know, that you have absolute advantage in, uh, may fall. That, you know, if you're, you know, you're great at producing, you know, cork ball, <laughs> uh, you're a great player. But then when we, you know, open up to the Dominican Republic, it uh, turns out that they have just an incredible, you know, set of talent there. And all of a sudden your, your skill is not as valuable anymore, not because you're less good at it, but because there's an abundant supply of people who are even better. Exactly. Let's turn to uh, one aspect of this that's a little bit tricky, which is uh, contrary to the way some people talk about it. And there's a little bit of subtlety here, but we'll get to that. Trade can be, quote, good for the United States, but not good for every person in the United States at any at a particular point in time with respect to a particular kind of trade. Now, Don Boudreaux has been a guest on the program before, likes to emphasize that trade – he likes to argue that trade doesn't hurt people. And what he means by that is that it's better to live in a world of trade even if your particular skill is being punished maybe right now by a competitor overseas – and to live in a world of t- total self-sufficiency or, or no trade with the, in the international world. And we often forget that. I think it's an important point to remember. At the same time, certainly trade with certain countries at a point in time is harder on some workers than others. And their well-being and absolute standard of being can go down. So talk about the issues there and, and when we think about national well-being, which is a little bit deceptive as a concept. Right. So that's exactly the distinction uh, that's important to make, that trade is, uh, you could say, the simplest way to say it is it's going to raise GDP in aggregate. So the total wealth available to the nation, the total quantity of goods and services produced will increase. But it's going to increase by more among some than among others. And it's quite possible that even though the pie grows in aggregate, certain slices shrink enough that uh, individuals actually end up with a smaller piece of pie, uh, even if there, there's more pie to go around uh, notionally. So trade both increases the size of the pie, but it's also uh, always been understood in theory to be strongly redistributive. In other words, you know, go back to the Dominican Republic and corkball example. Uh, if if you know we discover a vast uh, supply of, of talented corkball players in the Dominican Republic. Uh, that's great for, uh, you know, for American sports fans. Uh, and, you know, they're going to be a lot better off than watching, you know, not as good play, but it's not good for Russ Roberts. Uh, your, uh, the, the value of your, uh, of your, uh, talent has all of a sudden been diminished. You and said, so, you, in, just to correct, you said yep. not as good play, you meant better play. They're going to better, sorry, better play. Yep. But that's right. So there'll be better players. And so the, the supply, you know, the, the entertainment value of Cork Bowl will rise. The advertising revenue, the stadiums will be filled, but not good for Russ Roberts. Uh, because you're, if you're one of those competitors, all of a sudden you're now go, you're playing in the farm league instead of in the majors. Uh, so your, the supply of talent has increased and your market value has declined. And in general, although that's, it sounds, you know, it's an extremely stylized example, you can kind of show in a, even in a, in a straightforward blackboard exercise that the size of, of the pie from that growth of, of, from improvement in quality will more than offset the losses to Russ Roberts or to all the domestic corkball players. However, uh, the gains go to a different set of people, right? They're going to the consumers uh, or they're going to the leagues. Uh, they're no, certainly not going to the corkball players who used to be the stars and are now the also rans. So just as a footnote, and um, don't worry, listeners, I'm going to talk less and David's going to talk more as we get deeper into this. But I, these are really important issues, and they came up recently in another episode. I just want to mention that 
when I started teaching uh, trade theory to my macroeconomic students and that what's called the deadweight loss from a tariff or quota, which is a fabulous source of uh, exam questions, and also intuition <laughs> about how the world works. I want to say I think it's a very valuable general set of skills, but I used to talk about the loss to America or the gains to America, and then I'd wave my hands and say, and of course, they don't all accrue to the same people, but the gains are large enough to outweigh the losses, and therefore trade is is efficient. And I think uh, that I eventually stopped teaching that, the deadweight loss part of it, the uh, the shrinking of the pie due to restricting of trade through tariffs and quotas. I'm still against tariffs and quotas, but not because it makes the pie smaller, and I think that's a dishonest way that we frequently sell it, uh, especially to undergraduates. The point, I think, to be made, and I tried to make it in my book, The Choice, is that, yes, some people will be hurt at a point in time. Yes, uh, in particular, they, they won't grow as fast, and they may even be absolutely hurt, but the world that their children and grandchildren inherit will have a lot more opportunity and a higher standard of living. And we care about our children and grandchildren, and we would most of us would make that swap willingly. And some of us don't have to make that swap. We get a better world and for ourselves and for our children and grandchildren. So, you know, when NAFTA was being debated and people would say, are cheap brooms uh, worth ruining a town? I, I would always argue that's, the, that's a false choice. That's not what the choice is. The choice is and consumers get cheap stuff and workers lose their jobs. And, hey, the gains to consumers of a nickel a broom, when you add them all up, that outweighs the losses, the ruined lives of these workers. Or to take your corkball example, I'm going to go to my next best alternative. If that takes 10 years to find and it pays a fraction of what it paid before and I have no self-esteem and my family falls apart because I don't get pride in my work anymore, that's that's real. And that's not going to be compensated for directly or – indirectly or even directly by government programs. There, there are things in place to try to do it. As you point out in your paper, they don't work very well, don't, don't, don't add much money to the pockets of those folks. So trade's very disruptive, and we should, we should be honest about it. That's right. So in the context of our paper, uh, or this work that we've been doing about the impact of the China shock, and we, we sort of start off by, you know, kind of restating re, uh, the conventional economic understanding. And we actually quote from Paul Krugman in 1997, uh, who writes, uh, if economists ruled the world, there would be no need for a world trade organization. The economist case for free trade is essentially a unilateral case. A country serves its own interests by pursuing free trade, regardless of what other countries do. And that wisdom is correct if you think of aggregate uh, country welfare, but it's not correct if you think about the perspective of every individual in that country. And in fact, you know, Krugman in, and that's a, uh, in Krugman and Obstelfeld in their undergraduate textbook actually also make this point, which is that owners of a country's abundant factors gain from trade. I'll say what that means in a second, but owners of a country's scarce factors lose. Compared to the rest of the world, the United States is abundantly endowed with highly skilled labor and low skilled labor is comparatively scarce. That means that international trade tends to make low-skilled workers in the United States worse off, not just temporarily, but on a sustained basis. And so economists have sort of long understood those theoretical points. But in reality, we hadn't seen a lot of evidence that said that trade was actually very disruptive for low-skilled workers in America. We've seen a lot of contraction of manufacturing over time. But much of that is technological. And in fact, manufacturing in the U.S. has been on the decline since the end of World War II. 70 years. And so, exactly. And so, 
uh, it was uh, reasonable uh, to sort of develop the idea that although those costs existed in theory, those sort of disruptive losses to, for example, low-skill workers, in practice, they were sort of second order. And I think that view uh, was correct at a time. And that was the kind of Bretton, Wood er- Bretton Woods era of trade before China's rise, when a lot of the trade that we saw in from the rich world was basically rich country trade. You know, so, you know, France sells us cheese and we sell them aircraft engines, right? And we buy, you know, cars from Germany and sell them marine- machine tools. And so it was a lot of, uh, you know, high-skilled workers competing with one another, uh, uh, but focusing on different areas of expertise. And what changed with China's rise uh, starting in the early 1990s was that all of a sudden a very labor-abundant, low-skill-intensive country that was quite large and, and size uh, is quite significant in trade because uh, it affects how much products, how much you can move into the world market. It all of a sudden became extremely, it opened to the world and then sort of marched up to the technological frontier from being decades behind it and created a, a, a flood of extremely competitive, high-quality products that directly competed with low-skill U.S. workers, as well as workers in other countries, including things like uh, textiles, shoes, commodity furniture, uh, plastics, rubber products, dolls. Uh, my co-author, <laughs> toys, sorry, my, my co-author, Gordon Hansen, you know, likes to say, you know, if you go into Walmart, Walmart and buy yourself a plastic doll, a raincoat, and uh, a pair of, you know, cheap high heels... Uh, you've just, you know, made a trip to, you know, the Chinese manufacturing sector. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so that all of a sudden the, the sort of the redistributive face of trade became very, very evident uh, because uh, we had an unusual situation where an extremely large country, meaning capable of supplying a lot of the world's manufacturing demand, uh, all of a sudden just came online. It's like it hadn't been there. It's like we discovered oil. <laughs> Uh, and uh, and it, its its development was so rapid. I mean, it's sort of unprecedented in uh, in contemporary world history to have a country that is so backwards technologically uh, all of a sudden become so competitive. And you know, it has an educated workforce, you know, relatively educated and skilled, hardworking. Uh, and then you know, Deng Xiaoping uh, opened up these special economic zones. He said, "You can use market prices. You can import Western machinery. We're going to allow foreign direct direct investment." And uh, I don't think anyone, in fact, it's clear that almost no one anticipated how quickly that would move (laughs) Uh, and how, uh, yeah, how, you know, and and let me say, let me be clear, it's been great for China. Uh, You know, it's brought hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, you know, fast, the fastest movement out of poverty in any time in world history. It's brought a lot of wealth to a lot of developing world because China's demand for commodities has brought it into Africa, into Central America, into Brazil. uh, And it's done a lot of good. Uh, you know, both, uh, you know, both in China and other places. So I, I want to be clear that this is not all cost by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but it has been very disruptive, more than I think economists or anyone else had anticipated based on our sort of bread and woods era experience of, yeah, we know trade is not Pareto improving in theory, meaning Pareto improving doesn't make everybody better off all at once. Uh, but in practice, you know, that sort of doesn't show up so much. Well, it, it showed up. It showed up a lot. Give us an idea of how big a change that is. I was shocked myself to see uh, China's uh, impact on world manufacturing output. A hard thing to measure, by the way, but something we try, we make an, an estimate at. So China, China's share of world manufacturing exports uh, measured in dollar terms uh, went from uh, approximately 
2 percent uh, in 1990 to about 17% in 2012. If we look at it share value added, meaning the actual, uh, value, the actual sort of improvements it makes. So to going, you know, when you take a, when you take a raw material and turn it into a finished product, part of the value is the, is the raw material. You shouldn't count that as your output. So the value added, the difference between what you buy and what you sell effectively, its share of, of world manufacturing value added went from uh, 5% to 25% in that period. Uh, which is just remarkable. Yeah, uh, and yeah, and that uh, has certainly you know corresponded to a, a big decline in the well by definition in the shares of many other countries, but particularly the United States actually. Uh, and it's not because the U.S. was such a large exporter of many of these goods that it's buying from China. It's that it was producing them for itself. So the U.S. you would think of the U.S. was you know buying from itself. It was buying leather goods and textiles and plastics and toys and commodity furniture. You know the kind of stuff you'd see at a Walmart or a Target, uh, producing it for itself. And all of a sudden, uh, it found wow, it's 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 actually cheaper just to buy it abroad uh, than to make it here. And that led to a substantial decline of employment in import competing manufacturing plants. And, and some of those plants are, you know, quite, quite large. So, you know, furniture plants that, that, uh, that employed more than 10,000 workers, there was, you know, a, a, a not trivial number of them and almost all of them closed up, uh, at, you know, because it's actually labor intensive work, uh, you know, making furniture is labor intensive. And, uh, and especially if you're doing fine sanding and if you're doing urethaning, uh, it's different, you know, when you're making couches, you're just kind of slapping on some uh, cloth and, and stapling it. But if you're actually making finished furniture, it's very labor intensive and labor costs in the U.S. are considerably higher than they are in China, especially around 1990 or 2000. And uh, and so though a lot of those uh, firms or those plants just kind of got wiped out uh, and we, you know, estimate the numbers in our work, uh, it's, you know, somewhere on the order of about conservatively about one and a half million workers. So, so I want to put that this in perspective, and I want to make sure people um, understand the, the again the sort of standard arguments that that I'm sympathetic to, and that you are too. But uh, up to a point, only up to a point. Um, this is nothing new. Uh, one argument goes, and this would be the argument I've given most of the over this period. So I'm interested in hearing why it's not uh, true. If you think it's not. This is nothing new. Uh, we had uh, massive uh, imports from from Japan. We've had a surge in imports from Mexico after NAFTA. Um, as you say, manufacturing in employment has been declining steadily. There's been a, an acceleration of the downward trend in the last ten or twelve years, but it's not it's not like it falls off the the map. It it, it goes down. And at the same time, U.S. manufacturing outputs rising steadily throughout this period as it's measured. It's not right. like we don't make anything value anymore. People don't understand that. They think, oh, my gosh, we don't make anything anymore. We make a lot more than we used to make, and that's because of productivity and technology. So that's happening all around the world. The total pie of – total like amount of manufacturing activity is getting a lot bigger. But that always happened. U.S. Uh, car manufacturing shrunk in the 80s as Japan's production came online. And through a whole, all this period until recently, uh, unemployment never got very high. It's not very high right now. It's 5%. Um, the American consumer got cheaper goods. That freed up money to buy other things. Those things are hard to measure the direct effect, but surely there are jobs that expand. 
And we see that during decade after decade of hundreds of billions of dollars of trade deficit year in, year out, and the economy still keeps humming along. Unemployment stays low most of the time, unless we have recession. They've been mild. So it's not obvious that that China's rise should be much different than what we've seen before. Why? What's the theoretical case for for paying more attention to it? Sure. Uh, I think there uh, the theory is 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 not different from what it's been. Uh, I think what's distinctive about the China case uh, are one uh, how large it is. So let's say Vietnam had you know gone had done followed exactly the development path of China in exactly the same time period, gone from you know absolutely backward to uh, you know at the frontier. Well, it couldn't have been as big a deal for the world as China's rise because Vietnam has only so much export capacity. So, you know, after we got really productive, eventually it would run out of labor, run out of space, and, and prices would start to rise. And it just couldn't be that – it couldn't supply a lot of the world's demand. Um, but because China is the world's largest country uh, and because it had a huge amount of surplus labor, basically you had a lot of people out in the rural areas, uh, my, about 150 million of whom migrated into – uh, into cities, into export processing zones. So you had this incredible latent capacity. You could think of it as China was like the, you know, proverbial rock poised atop uh, a spire in a mountain waiting to come down. It's just all that, uh, uh, potential energy can, can convert into kinetic energy in very short order. <laughs> uh, so, so that's one factor is how, uh, how quickly it occurred and how big the country was. The second was its extreme specialization in labor intensive production. Right. Its ability to make, uh, you know, goods that require just a lot of human hours and, you know, textiles and leather and also even electronics assembly, a lot of plastic things. They just require a lot of hand assembly. Uh, and so that was direct competition with the lowest skilled sector of the U.S. manufacturing workforce, a lot of uh, which is employed along the southeast. So it's not the Rust Belt industries. It's not cars. It's not engines. It's not uh, electronics. It's really uh you know, uh, the labor intensive part of U.S. manufacturing is much more uh, in the low wage regions of the country and a lot of them being in the southeast. So, you know, again, furniture being a really good example. So that second factor is that uh, specialization, extreme specialization in labor intensive. Uh, and um, let's see, is there a third factor? <laughs> um, the the other thing, I, yeah, actually, there is a third factor. In fact, there's two other factors. Um, so a third factor is the uh, is the WTO. So China's accession to the WTO, joining the World Trade Trade Organization in 2001, led to a kind of inflection in U.S. trade with China that no one had anticipated. Uh, this is again another case of uh, you know unanticipated consequences, and uh, it's not clear even today why it happened so dramatically because. China already enjoyed most favored, na- trade, most favored nation trading status in the United States. So it already got the, you know, the best deal in terms of uh, the, the rules and tariffs we apply. And so the WTO accession basically just sort of formalized that and said, okay, this is not going to happen year to year. This is basically, this is for keeps. And so it didn't nominally change the tariffs facing China to any substantial degree. Um, but, you know, the best interpretation of what actually happened, this goes to, uh, to Peter Schott at Yale and, and his co-authors, uh, is that um, all of a sudden the uncertainty was resolved. The country said, oh, okay, all right, well, this is, you know, this is good. Let's go for it. Now let's, let's move production. Uh, let's move production overseas now. Our property rights are secure. Our markets are, you know, are going to be stable. So uh, this is now, this is a keeper. Uh, let's go all in. So 
uh, that's the third factor is the WTO accession just really uh, caused, you know, it just went from, it was already going 60, it went from 60 to 100 uh, in very short order. And, and it's very striking when you see in the data. And, and everyone was, I think just about everyone was surprised by that as well. And then the fourth factor, and this one is really, uh, is, is difficult also to, you know, to explain the origins. But the U.S. trade deficit is a big part of this. And the reason uh, is, you know, uh, is, so first of all, the U.S. has a merchandise uh, trade deficit as a share of GDP uh, as, as uh, large as um, three or four percentage points during the 2000s. So quite large. And, uh, and a trade deficit you can think of as it's like we're borrowing. Right. So it's like if we were making a bunch of stuff for ourselves, we were buying, you know, we're making, uh, you know, shoes and leather goods and uh, and furniture. And then all of a sudden China comes along and says, hey, I can make these more cheaply than you. We say, "Okay, great. We'll buy some. They say, hey, you know what? I'll just lend them to you. You can pay me back later. (laughs) And uh, if we had had to say if there had been a deal where and again, I'm personifying. This is not any country saying this was not this was not uh, part of a uh, uh, explicitly crafted deal. But if there had been a situation where we said, "Okay." We're going to get those goods from you, but we're going to produce something else in exchange. Then we would have had labor reallocating from one manufacturing activity to another, presumably. All right. So we say, okay, you're, we'll you know we'll buy these furniture uh, from you, but we will sell you these uh, these electronics or these uh, aircraft parts or something. But not doing that, it's like we took uh, a set of activities that we we're engaged in that employed you know uh, millions of people actually to do them, and we just stopped doing them. Instead, just got the goods on loan from another country. Now, in the long run, in theory, we have to pay that back. And to pay that back, you know, presumably we either have to, you know, make more stuff for export, which will create a lot of employment, or uh, we have to devalue the U.S. currency, which will lower standards of living, but will also have the effect of, of making those debts uh, easier to surface, service. But, but the trade deficit does loom large because it means in the short term, it's like an inward shift in labor demand. Stuff that we were paying ourselves to make, we just got elsewhere without having to pay for them. Uh, and so that was pretty contractionary for demand for the type of workers that were doing uh, export. I'm uh, sorry, these uh, these uh, manufacturing labor-intensive goods that we in, uh, in started getting from China instead of producing domestically. Well, I got to disagree with with a bunch of that. So let me take a sh- let me take <laughs> let me take a shot. Um, I think it's. I, I know you're trying to use it as a shorthand, but I think calling it borrowing or debt is is misleading, and and it. Unfortunately, I think leads to uh, presidential candidates who claim that because we have a large deficit with um, a trade deficit with China, that we are somehow in hock to them or they're beating us or we're behind. So uh, let me rephrase it a different way and see if you if you agree or disagree. We finance our trade deficit with a capital surplus, roughly. It's not – there's currency and there's other things in there. But basically w- what we've done is we can buy more than we produce. That's what a trade deficit – with respect to the rest of the world, that's what a, a trade deficit is. So where's that money come from? Well, it comes from the fact that foreigners are willing to invest more in the United States than we want to invest in their countries. So what we've swapped – when we got those cheap textiles and toys from China, what we got in return wasn't uh, – they didn't buy our – uh, airplane parts. They did a little bit, but on average, you know, the, the net effect was they, they bought, we bought a lot more from them than they bought from us, but they invested a lot more in us than we invested in them. That is, they took a slice of our future productivity as the price for their uh, cheap 
um, the cheap goods, less expensive and, and attractive goods that they that they gave to us. So the, the way I think of it is there were, and this was true with Japan as well during, in the 80s and 90s. There were boats going from China, and they're still doing this. And what are those boats carrying? They're carrying all those textiles and all the great stuff that they produce. And they land on our shores and fill up our Walmarts and our kitchens and our houses. In return, there's boats going back to China, but they don't have they don't have our goods as much. They they have some, but they also have lots of pieces of paper that are claims on U.S. Uh, investments in various property and all kinds of things. Uh, well, a lot and a lot of those actually would be U.S. bonds. That's correct, uh, but that's so because they the allowed they allowed the U.S. <laughs> That's wait, wait, but, but just let me. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> but it, it, I mean, so what it did was it allowed for very, very cheap interest rates in the United States. Uh, you know, we could get, we could borrow yep. for essentially nothing. Uh, whether we use that opportunity well, right. well, I think history is pretty clear. I just think it's important not to confuse that with trade. The fact that the U.S. government spends a lot more than it takes in and is able to get the Chinese to finance it, I think, is unfortunate. That's a whole separate can of worms. We're not going to open. We're going to keep that closed. But the point I want to make is that I, I, I think it's really this is really I think important that if China forget all this trade balance stuff. If China showed up or foreign nations showed up in America and said with with gifts, not not sales, gifts, and they parked cars in our driveways and they filled our closets with free clothes and cheap food, and it wasn't a trick. It's you know there's it's just something they're going to do for the next twenty or thirty or maybe forever. Uh, it's not a it's not a, a plot to get us to stop doing it. Then they're going to jack up the prices. You, know, you, hear, you hear that argument? But let's just say they're giving us all this free stuff. That's really fantastic, unless as you point out, you're in the clothing business, in which case it stinks. That's true, right? No doubt about that. But I want to come back to my to my question, which is this has been going on for a long time. In big magnitudes through the 80s and 90s, not just the 2000s, it did not appear to have let, – let me phrase the question a little more pointedly. The last three recessions have been pretty uh, disappointing in terms of job growth. Those suggest that there's – those effects suggest there's something has changed in the U.S. labor market. So it's not China that's the problem. It's something else that China is letting us see – which is that the one-time flexibility of the U.S. labor market, the ability of, say, the auto workers of the 1980s or the defense workers of the 1990s after the, the Cold War ended, a lot of people were thrown out of work, had nothing to do with international trade. It had to do with the fact that our defense department could shrink, which was great. And those people found other work, just like they had when other things changed. When textile uh, jobs left New England and went to South Carolina and North Carolina, and then they went to, to Asia – well, it was good for almost everybody. If you're really specialized, yes, you had a tough time, but you found other things to do. That appears to have changed. Is that the problem rather than China trade per se? Okay, so there's so there's so many points on the table here. Let, let me see if I can respond to a few of them. Uh, first of all, I want to be clear. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not China's fault. Uh, and this is in no sense to say that this was a consequence of China's rise. It's not to say it was China's fault. Uh and certainly the things we're talking about, you know, what did we do with these, you know, these cheap interest rates and, you know, low, low cost loans? You could say that it was a squandered opportunity, right? That, that didn't have to be the case. Uh, many other countries that responded to China's uh, rising uh, productivity by importing Chinese goods from China, but then selling China other goods. So Germany did that. China run, Germany runs a, a trade surplus with China. Many, most of Europe 
is relatively more in balance. So uh, the reason I bring up the trade deficit is not because uh, there's something intrinsically wrong with trade deficits. They are an opportunity. There's some, basically someone's lending you something or making an investment in you, and you can use that as you like. However, it did mean that the manufacturing jobs that might have occurred to, you know, if we had, if we were, if we were running a trade balance to, you know, that workers would have been reallocated from one type of manufacturing potentially to another, that didn't occur. So that's part of the reason there wasn't faster reabsorption. Um, a second, you're saying the question you're asking is, has the U.S. labor market become less flexible so that these shocks matter differently, and that why, you know, why aren't we just getting back up on our feet? Uh, feet the way we should or the way we perceived ourselves to have done in the past. And there, I, I'm not, I, I think the answer I'm going to give is sort of yes and no. So let me start with a no. <laughs> um, we've known for a long time that that, lo- that job, that displaced workers losing career jobs do very badly. And this goes back actually to the work of Jacob Lalonde and Sullivan, their famous 1992 paper, which basically studied the closing of the steel industry in Pittsburgh. Uh, during the early 1980s, right, when the dollar was extremely strong and uh, we started importing a lot of steel from Japan. And basically, this was the big, first really big Rust Belt recession. Right? And uh, and those steel plants never came back. And those workers who worked at those steel plants, many of them also never came back. So they lost, on average, about 30% of earnings for the next 10 years. Many of them were not reemployed uh, many years later. And those who were reemployed were reemployed at significantly lower wages. We even know from subsequent work that their mortality increased. Many, you know, probably many of them died of, or there was, there was a, a, a higher rate of mortality, probably having to do with heart attacks and other health, health issues. Maybe some drinking it wasn't oxycodone at the time. Um, so one, we've always known it's costly to workers to be displaced, and so. Uh, in general, you don't, you know, get fired from Ford Motor Company and then just go start your own auto company and <laughs> make a fortune at that. Um, the, I think what what there are two things that make this episode somewhat different. Or uh, one, of course, is that uh, the it, ha- it was so big and so rapid. So the rap- the rate of change matters because you know workers compete with each other when they're unemployed for new jobs. So we know this from data from, for example, Austria when Austria bought out a bunch of. Uh, uh, late career workers, 55 and older, who were former steel employees and just basically gave them an early retirement, all of a sudden the employment rates of guys just slightly younger shot up. <laughs> Why? Well, they were all competing for the same set of jobs. So uh, so if, it, if a lot of people are just placed all at once, uh, that adds to it, especially when it's geographically concentrated. And of course, manufacturing is always geographically concentrated. So it all tends to happen all in one place. So it's not just a few people losing jobs, but it's lots of people. And so that has kind of a multiplier effect on the local economy. I think another uh, factor is that, you know, the U.S. has seen a long running decline in demand for less educated workers. And many of these folks were less educated workers, uh, you know, not a high school grad or high school dropout. And so there wasn't, when you talked earlier about your outside option, if you weren't playing uh, cork ball, um, these guys didn't have a good outside option. You could argue that they were doing much better in manufacturing than they could have been doing in some alternative sector. And so there wasn't a kind of, a, you know, a soft landing for them. Uh, so and that, so that, that sort of goes to your question about, you know, was there something that's changing? And I'd say, yes, the, you know, the bottom has been dropping out for a long time. For non-college workers in the U.S. labor market, really since you know since 1979, 1980, um, and these guys were you know in some sense in a relatively privileged position to have stable, reasonably well-paying career jobs that didn't require high levels of education, 
And so when those jobs were you know, uh, unexpectedly uh, went away, they didn't have something good to fall back on, something equally good to fall back on. Yeah, just a couple of thoughts, and then I, I want to get to some of the empirical work which um, of yours. So that 1992 paper, of course, that, that's the beginning. I think I said jobless recession. I meant jobless recovery. The 91 recession was the first – the recovery from that and the right. 2001. But they were studying steel – they were studying steel workers in the 1980s, right? Okay. So you know, the paper was published in 92. Good point. Um, I just want to add one other theoretical point though, which is I, 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 I don't like when, when you say that if China had bought stuff instead of investing in or borrowing from U.S. – investing in U.S. assets, either loans from the government or stock or equity or real estate – that the job effects wouldn't have been as as big, I think, or would have been different. If we go back to the gift scenario, if they gave us all the stuff and they didn't charge us anything and they didn't borrow anything and they didn't invest anything, those workers in those industries would have to reallocate. But if they bought it, but but Americans, because they have free stuff now, they now have more money to spend on other things. So those ex- industries are going to expand, and, and there's no reason inherently that. The trade imports are going to cause unemployment or job loss in the aggregate unless markets don't adjust. And that's the that's the crucial question. Sure. So, uh, you know, uh, agree. If they if there was no if they were given as gifts, it would be incredibly disruptive, right? Even though it would yeah. make it would increase aggregate welfare, right? We're getting stuff for free that we used to have to pay for. So, you know, lots of people are going to be better off. It's just that a, a subset of people are going to be much much worse off. The, the gains are in net going to be positive, uh, it's conventionally measured. It's just that the guys who have free clothes but no employment are not going to feel fully whole. <laughs> That's not my point, though. That's not my point. My point is, is that my point is that those workers' opportunities are no different than if China bought goods instead of investing. Because if they bought, invest, if they invest instead of buying American stuff, then Americans have all this extra stuff to spend money on, and those industries are going to expand. And there's no reason to think that Americans' demand for other stuff is going to be any – will be different than Chinese. But – and that there will be an adjustment period, and, and certainly we, we care about and worry about and are interested in how long it takes. I'm just picking on this point that somehow because China didn't buy stuff, that somehow there's job losses that can't be made up. There's disruption, but I don't think there's job losses. <laughs> Okay, so first of all, the uh, let me be clear. It's not China's fault for not buying stuff. They bought stuff from lots of other countries, right? <laughs> yeah. So I, w- I want to be clear that yeah, it's not like they said we're that. giving you, but we won't buy. No, no. I just want to. I just want you know. I was very. Digi- I I, I want to be clear that I'm not bashing China, <laughs> uh, and I'm not. I'm not. You know. So we're telling a story, about, a positive story about what happened, not a normative story about whose fault it is, uh, and. Uh, but so sure, there, it creates aggregate wealth, and and that makes consumers better off. And they can use that aggregate wealth. They can go out to dinner more. They can buy you know television sets. You know, with money they would have spent on clothes, they could spend on their kids' education. Lots of things can happen. Um, but it does mean that the workers had you know the workers who were laid off had a specific skill set uh, in general, and that you know is not a highly educated or flexible skill set. If they if China had said, well, all right, we're gonna you know we're gonna buy we're gonna sell you all our textiles, but we're gonna buy leather goods. Uh, you could imagine that those workers could more easily reallocate into another activity that looked pretty similar to what they were doing. So potentially might have been reemployed at, you know, at com- under comparable conditions. But if instead you said, okay, well, you know, because of this, we get to buy all these iPhones, right? We have all this cheap money, so we're going to buy big TVs and iPhones and go out to restaurants and we'll, we'll take more vacations. Well, we're wealthier, but it does, that's not going to do much for the employment of those specific individuals who are directly impacted. 
So that's why I think that the bounce back is a little harder because there's not a uh, a good outside option for those workers. And you know, we know employment rates of not, of low educated Americans have been on the decline for a long time. So it's not that you know they were otherwise doing great and then this was uh, this was a blip. It's that you know the bottom had been slowly dropping and then this was a, a very rapid drop. And all of those declines have been associated with declining employment rates of non-college workers. And the last recessions have, from after each one, there's been not an incomplete bounce back. The only time we really saw a rise in the employment population rate of low-educated Americans was during the mid-1990s when the labor market was extremely tight uh, and productivity and wages were rising. And that was, you know, sort of mourning in America. Uh, but unfortunately, it, uh, it didn't last that long. Yeah, I don't disagree with any of that. I just, I'm just again reacting to this idea that somehow there was an employment loss because China didn't buy stuff, which is, I think, I think it just misleads folks who don't know these issues, don't think about them a lot. Uh, yeah, I, I think the the thing that we agree on, and and really the point of our paper is not about the net job losses. Uh, it's really about the degree of concentrated loss, right? Even if the you know we the gains are positive in all likelihood. Uh, in net is that it, it was very devastating the way that people were not expecting to specific subsets, specific regions uh, that, you know, went from being relatively robust uh, manufacturing centers to being rather blighted or at least to a subset of people uh, losing, you know, career employment and not being able to find good alternatives. And that's what we're trying to draw attention to. The other part of the calculus, which is the the uh, the net gains are very likely positive. However, the the distributional cost, which we've always known about in theory, but hadn't seen a lot in practice, we now saw that uh, very very clearly. And I can talk more about how we did that yeah, if that's, that's helpful let's as turn, well. Let's turn to that. I just um, and I you know I don't I agree with everything you just said. I think um, I just think that all kinds of changes, technological change, um, changes in tastes. I don't think the construction and housing market is the people who were in that market who suffered when the housing uh, market collapsed, I think a lot of them, very geographically located in certain states, have struggled to find new stuff. And so I think what – to me – and I'm happy to hear a broader perspective – but to me, what your work so far highlights to me is that labor markets and geographical mobility are not what we thought they were. And so in response to all these kind of changes – Certain types of people, especially with narrow skills or less education, are really struggling. That's correct. That's absolutely correct. So let's talk about what you found for China for this particular case. Sure. So, so let me say, we, we start out uh, to ask the question, how have labor markets adapted to this very, very rapid rise of trade? And uh, our prior was that they would have adapted uh, uh, pretty well. And the way we went about asking or analyzing that question, I said, okay, well, let's, let's take all the goods that the U.S. imports from China, and there are about 400, and, let's say there's 400 categories of those. And uh, so we see uh, an increase in, you know, tennis shoes, an increase in furniture, an increase in, uh, you know, certain types of construction products. products. Well, then we can say, okay, well, where would those be produced in the U.S.? What are the, uh, so if, if we were making them here, where would they have been produced? Well, we just go to the old um, county business patterns. We see employment uh, by detailed industry, by county. Uh, and we can look at, let's say, in 1980, when, you know, before this started, or even 1990. And we can say, OK, these are the places where those things are produced. So if there's going to be an import competition effect, it's going to be in those locations. So then we, so we, uh, for each of these imports, we can then sort of attribute 
where they would potentially have been produced. And we can trace them back to effectively uh, what's called a commuting zone, which is a, cu- a cluster of counties. There's 722 of them in the U.S. And uh, and then uh, and then say, well, did that have when we see, you know, if we see imports surge in in uh, in footwear, do we see footwear producing places start to lose employment? Now, the thing that's insufficient about that is you say, well, look, imports could start to surge for all kinds of reasons. They could surge because uh, China's getting more competitive, but they could also surge because our tastes change. Uh, they could surge because our factories shut down for some other reason, and then we start importing. So that's not really uh, uh, completely compelling. We really want to focus on the part that is due to China's rising competitiveness, its rising productivity, its falling trade costs, and so on. Uh, so what we do is we look at the same goods uh, being imported to uh, eight other wealthy countries. So we, we choose these eight countries because there's harmonized data, but, you know, they're like Austria and Australia and Japan and so on. And we, we look at the when exports from China in a, particular category, in a particular category surge to all those countries simultaneously. And we say that's very likely, again, we can't perfectly trace it, but, you know, that's almost surely due to China's falling costs, rising productivity, rising quality. And we use that to predict the, the, the import growth in the U.S. by category, by each of these 400 product, product categories, and then look at that predicted component and how it relates to changes in employment in manufacturing in each of those locations. And it's actually, that may or may not have sounded too complicated, but it's actually incredibly visually striking. You see it right away. It jumps off the page. And I think that's why this research, uh, as your as your prior guest uh, said, you know, changed some minds because it's quite strict, transparent. You can you can you can find the locations and you can see what's happening there. But that's not the that's not the most important part of this research to me. So um, again, it's not surprising that textile mills in the South got in trouble. Um, what we're really interested in, and it's not surprising that Lowell and Lawrence aren't what they used to be, because um, what we really care about is the people there. And and a lot of those people, when they see that the mill is gone or the factory is gone, they move. And they change or their example I like to emphasize is that their kids notice I'm not going to grow up and work in that factory and I better graduate from high school. I better go off to college if I can, even though it might be a community college because the parents don't have a lot of money anymore or to a, a public university. So I think the more dramatic thing you find is is how long it takes for the people in those areas to recover. So the impact's large because there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff coming from China. There's also opportunities now that expand elsewhere, we would think, and you don't find that. That's what's striking, it seems to me. That's absolutely right. So you're completely right to emphasize that. We shouldn't be surprised that import competing manufacturers contract. I mean, we're only going to buy so many tennis shoes, so if we buy a billion dollars of them from China, we'll probably produce somewhat less here. Uh, like zero the, uh, in some industries. <laughs> yes, in, ma- in many cases, it's zero now. That's absolutely correct. What we, But what, you know, we would conventionally expect as well those workers would reallocate. So we ask at the level of these commuting zones, do we see a movement into other sectors? And the surprising finding is that the net decline in employment uh, uh, commuting zone wide is actually larger than just the decline in manufacturing. In other words, there seems to be a general slowdown of economic activity, not enormously larger, but about a third again larger which is consistent with the sort of, you know, the Detroit effect, you might think, where an area, you know, lose a lot of manufacturing, and then it becomes somewhat blighted. Or, you know, people also stop going out to restaurants, and they stop going to movies, and they, they buy fewer consumer goods. And so uh, that actually 
spills over and reduces uh, household incomes, reduces employment rates, uh, causes more people to exit the labor force, not only to become unemployed, but to become non-employed, meaning they say they're no longer searching for work, and additionally to claim public benefits programs. Now, you might think those benefits are unemployment and trade adjustment assistance, and that's true. Those programs are very responsive in proportional terms, but those are actually kind of small potatoes. Uh, the much bigger transfers spurred by these trade shocks are actually disability payments, which you and I have talked about on this program a number of years earlier, uh, and uh, early retirements and uh, Medicare, uh, Medicaid, uh, TANF, uh, which is, you know, and, and uh, SNAP, which is food stamps. Um, so the, and those programs are not intended to spur employment. In fact, in the case of disability, they are really the opposite of employment. Uh, and so they don't facilitate, they, they do, they do shield workers to some degree against income shocks, which is a good thing, but they do not have the incentive properties to help people get back into the labor market, unlike unemployment insurance or trade adjustment assistance, uh, which are designed at least Exactly. They're temporary and they have incentive effects for you know, return to work or even for training in the case of trade adjustment assistance. So that was another thing that became very clear in our research is that part of the adjustment mechanism was onto other benefits programs that were not you know, designed as labor market programs. So here's the story. Uh, I want to, We're going to come back to how reliable those – we haven't really talked about the magnitudes uh, because I want you to talk about that. Uh, why don't you talk about that first? How, how big are these effects – Sure. So uh, the uh, let's see. So we ex- we we estimate that about twenty five percent of the decline in U.S. manufacturing employment between nineteen ninety and two thousand seven was due to China's rising competitiveness, and about forty five percent between two thousand and two thousand seven. The total and these are I, I only be clear. These are conservative estimates. We're only taking account for the piece of variation that we can confidently attribute to the productivity side, as opposed to just whatever else causes imports. Uh, so in net, that would be a reduction of about one and a half million manufacturing jobs. Um, the net employment effects are somewhat larger because of this sort of one-third multiplier. So you could add another half million to that. Um, when we look at the effects on transfer income, we find that sort of every $1,000 of increased uh, import penetration uh, leads to approximately, this is kind of interesting, about a $58 increase in transfer payments. <laughs> Uh, about $4 of which is unemployment, uh, another $8 is disability, another $10 is retirement, uh, another 15 is other federal income assistance, and another 18 is government medical benefits. Uh, so, so it's actually, you know, I mean, 60 out of 1,000 isn't, isn't a huge number, it's only 0.6%, uh, but, uh, no, sorry, excuse me, it's 6%, sorry, <laughs> uh, but it's not, it's not at all small. And, you know, if you want to think of these now, of course, some of those are transfers, not losses, right? If, 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 uh, if you take money and give it to me, that's not an economic loss. That's just a transfer between us. But, uh, of course, we have to raise taxes to pay for those transfers, and that does have efficiency costs. And then you might think that just the involuntary employment itself has a cost. You know, it's not just when people are, are not working, they're not indifferent about that. They're usually kind of miserable. Uh, so we think of that, although we don't try to uh, monetize that as also a potential cost. So, yeah, I think we see we, and we, what we don't see, what we expected to see. One, we expected to see people moving out of manufacturing into you know, non-manufacturing, everything else. We don't see that happening at the local level, nor do we see a lot of mobility, geographic mobility that you would anticipate. We don't see people moving to, you know, uh, growing places very rapidly. They tend to stay put. 
uh, partly, I suppose, because they're getting these localized uh, benefits and partly because they have families and uh, partly because they don't know if there are other good opportunities. And for many of uh, the workers who are displaced who are low educated and uh, middle aged, that may be that there aren't that many com- compelling alternatives, uh, you know, available, even if they moved outside of the area where they were working. Yeah, I think it's an incredibly challenging thing because what we really want is data in the 50s, 60s and 70s. And we don't have we have some data, but the shocks aren't so large, much harder to tease out the impact. Um, That's right. Because it strikes me, I mean, it's all to to pull all together into a to me for the complexity of it is to say the following. We know that labor force participation for uh, prime age males has been falling. Uh, I presume it's been falling disproportionately for lower educated men. Absolutely. And that's a combination of of two forces. And I want you to give me your thoughts on the relative weights. The world's turned against them, not literally. There's no malice there. But their opportunities have gotten less attractive. There's also – I want to emphasize this. It's really important. There are fewer of them. (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah. But not as few as – yeah. When people say, you know, you know, it's hard to be a high school graduate in America or it's hard to be a high school dropout, it's much harder. It is. And it's also hard to be a blacksmith. Uh, those jobs aren't as attractive as they used to be. And usually people adjust to those things. And I think the challenge, the social challenge, the cultural challenge is, is that, that we're not so good at adapting perhaps as we once were but for all kinds of reasons. But those folks, the low education level folks, particularly men, are struggling to find work because of technology that's made them somewhat redundant and because of trade that's a new competitor. At the same time, partly in response to this possibly, but maybe not, the government programs that cushion those blows have gotten a little more generous. They've gotten a little more easier to qualify for, particularly disability, which I learned from you. And as a result, the things they used to do when they're faced with those changes, they don't bother with as much as it's not as costly to, to, to avoid those unpleasant things like moving. It's also housing prices which make it harder to move and i think root people so partially going back to my earlier point that these the last 25 years of, of economic change uh our labor force has become a little bit more like europe's uh we have more a better safety net in place for the people who are harmed but the result of that is that it's not as flexible and so we observe persistent impacts because the incentives to, to escape those impacts has gone down. Is that a fair assessment? Uh, I agree with most of it, but not all of it. I, I'm not sure the incentives of, you know, the, the outside option of being a non-worker has greatly improved uh, in the time such that people don't have an incentive to work. Uh, I think it's more that the set of options that are available to them have really gotten worse. Uh, For sure, the, the earnings, the earnings levels of non-college workers have you know fallen, or high school and high school dropout have fallen on the order of twenty to thirty percent since nineteen eighty. Uh, those jobs actually have you know arguably less security, less likely to have healthcare benefits until recently, uh, and uh, and also may also be sort of less psychically appealing. Many of them are basically personal services uh, as opposed to you know uh, tangible work and. I think men in particular tend to have preferences around that. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm making myself an out-of-date sexist by saying so. It's an open question. So, but I do think, I, I agree with you absolutely that technology has played a very big long-term role in this, and that that is the more important, if I had to say which of the two forces was the most important, I would say it was the former, it was technology. Trade 
really wasn't a very big deal for what was happening to, you know, uh, low-educated uh, male employment in the U.S. in the 1980s, uh, except through the sort of, you know, the, the dollar shock. Um, but uh, I, so I think technology has led to a lot of redundancy. There's just a lot less uh, dexterous uh, physical labor to do uh, in manufacturing uh, and even in, you know, kind of uh, warehouse operations. There's still, there still are, by the way, very good trade jobs, job, you know, when I say trade, I'm sorry, in the trades, in the skilled trades, like electrical work and plumbing and some sorts of construction and skilled repair. So I don't want to say that that's all gone, but there's less of it. You're definitely right that there are many fewer as a share of population, low educated workers than there used to be. The irony is that they, the, the supply has not shrank as fast as the demand. So even though there's only a third as many as a share of population in 2015 as there were in 1980, uh, it seemingly uh, demand has moved inward even faster, such that their wages have fallen, such that employers view them as, as still uh, you know, less scarce. Um, now, you know, a good side of this, of course, is that people have been responding by investing in education. Right? People are, you know, many, many more people uh, attempt college, and more of them complete it. Not as many as should, and this is a different discussion. Uh, <laughs> yeah. See my conversation with Brian Kaplan. That's yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you know, we, we we are seeing people adapting, but we there is a there you know there are a lot of people left behind, and and they do. Uh, there's no question that you know some of the buffers include disability. Uh, actually, there's a, there's a, a fair amount of clampdown going on at this point, I would say, uh, and and just non-participation, also incarceration. Uh, you know, uh, so there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, long-term losses. I mean, the, the sort of vision of you know we, we we get we get hit, we fall down, we get right back up, and go back to the next thing. That is the data do not support that as having you know been the story, the main story for the last uh, twenty years or so. Part of the novelty of your of your econometric findings is the duration. So, talk briefly about how you try to measure the enduring impact. And by, by duration, I mean a decade could go by where the impact on a person could be out of labor force for a very long time. It's not just oh, it takes a while to find a new job and it doesn't pay as well, but they lose ten percent or fifteen percent. Some of these effects are quite long and quite large. That's right. So, you know, at the labor market level, we sort of look at over 10-year periods, and that's where we're measuring the growth of non-participation and so on in, in these kind of 10-year chunks. In another paper, we use longitudinal Social Security earnings data uh, to look at workers who were exposed in the early 1990s, and we're able to follow them through, again, through 2007. And what we see is, you know, it's quite a bifurcated picture. So on average, so if we look at workers employed in trade-exposed uh, industries and firms, you know, around 1990, 1991, uh, the sort of top third of them, the, the highest earning uh, third, or, you know, probably the best educated, we can't measure education in those data, but that's what we infer, they do fine. I mean, they, they change employers. There's no question that the shock affects them, but they move to other manufacturers or even outside of manufacturing. They don't seem to lose wages uh, or uh, have significant chunks out of labor force. And so on average, actually, the effect isn't that large. But if you sort of look at the bottom tercile of workers, the people who are sort of the lowest earning third among full-time workers within their age cohort, those guys, uh, they just seem um, to lose employment and earnings in a way that they are not able to recover from, in the sense that if they stay with the same employer, they, uh, their earnings are lower. If they move to another part of manufacturing, their earnings are lower. 
If they move outside of manufacturing, their earnings are lower. So it's as if they were, you know, they had some kind of good deal going, <laughs> uh, and uh, and they're just not able to get uh, to make it up again. Uh, so it's not that the degree of churn among those workers and movement out of the original firm into others is not higher than among the most exposed. I uh, sorry, sorry, the, the highest earning, equally exposed, highest earning. It's just that the the uh, higher earning guys seem more adaptable. They're more adaptive. They have other outside opportunities. And one thing that we do see in the data is that people often move to another sector initially that then also gets hit, right? So they say, oh, things aren't so good in textiles. I think I'll move to leather. Oh, things aren't so good in leather. I think I'll move to furniture. Oh, things aren't so good in furniture. I think I'll move to doll manufacturing. And, you know, and it's logical because those industries are using the same skill set yeah. to some degree. That's why they're all moving to China. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. And, but it means that the same workers are kind of uh, are arguably repeatedly kind of surprised, unpleasantly surprised by the thing that happens next. So, yeah, we, we do see over you know, the long term, uh, among, it really is on average, the effects aren't that large at the individual level. But uh, among the people who are initially uh, have uh, less experience and have initially low earnings levels, the effects are very pronounced. So I just we didn't get into the depth. The deepest part of the econometrics here, which is too bad, um, and that was the subject of a different episode where we talked about how convincing those things are. But putting that to the side, you have to do some fairly uh, fancy things to try to isolate the effects of just China per se. And I, I'm just – give me a subjective estimate of how confident you are in the magnitudes and how sensitive – I always like to ask, you know, how many regressions did you run? And I know the answer is a lot. So you tried different specifications. Some of them were more convincing maybe than others. Uh, how many, how much, how sensitive were your findings to uh, the different assumptions you made? How wide was the range of effects? Sure. So, so let, me, let me give a kind of multi-part answer. Uh, so first of all, we're, we're absolutely certain that there is a, a, real, a real effect and that it's not a small effect, right? Like, you know, you could, uh, if you held a gun to my head and, and the gun would fire if I if I were you know uncertain or lying, uh, I would still be standing, <laughs> yeah, because it's just very very clear, um, you know, on the magnitude. So there's two answers to that question. So one, I you know we get these estimates of one to one and a half million. I'm sure you could bounce that around by thirty percent in either direction, uh, and you know by changing the covariates or slightly changing the time period or you know, uh, controlling for this or that. So, you know, I don't think that, uh, and of course the estimates have standard errors, but probably they're too conservative. But, you know, again, it, so if I say one and a half million, it could be one million, it could be two million. Um, there's another question though, and this is, I think, you know, other economists would say, well, you're measuring the losses, but you're not measuring the gains equally well. Yeah. Uh, in other, in other words, you're sort of measuring, that's right. So you're measuring a kind of a relative effect, but you're calling an absolute effect. So you know maybe there's all these millions of jobs being created in Silicon Valley that you know are, are that are an indirect result of China, but you can't you know you don't have an you don't have a strategy to see that. So it's true that you know there are relative losses in you know Raleigh and in Cleveland and so on, but you know that they're the uh, they're not absolute numbers because you're not accounting for the gains elsewhere. And I think that's a more trenchant criticism. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not that I think our estimates are cooked or even that sensitive. It's that they might miss other important margins. Uh, and I'm happy to concede that point. I mean, let me, we've tried, we, we've, it's not that we've sort of agreed to just sort of punt on that question. We've tried a lot of ways to look for those missing margins. We really haven't found them. Uh, but they're much harder to measure. I think what we could say, you know, even if you found them, 
right? You would still have to say, look, this was actually very redistributive. Like, okay, create a lot of jobs in Silicon Valley. That's great, but it's definitely not the same people. <laughs> and so, you know, again, that would this you come down to the same bottom line about trade, which is it's raising GDP, and we don't dispute that question. Uh, and look, you and I benefit from a lot, okay. uh, but uh, but um, it's definitely uh, making some people uh, have much more challenging livelihoods, and uh, and you know they're not going to be compensated simply by having lower prices on you know stuff at Walmart. That's not going to make up that ground. So we ought to at least you know, recognizing that that doesn't mean we shouldn't trade. Uh, it means that we ought to think about the set of policies. Uh, they can at least help that adjustment. I don't think there's any way you're going to make that adjustment painless, but uh, you might try to make it less painful or, you know, even simply acknowledging that it exists is already a step forward because I think the conventional wisdom was so strongly in the camp of uh, could happen in, in uh, theory but doesn't happen in practice. Yeah, I think the conventional wisdom was, um, I don't know, incentivized by a set of all, for all kinds of things, ideology and and the but also, I think because of the t- the timing, I mean, in the Bretton Woods era, we just didn't see it. We knew it it could happen, but it just it wasn't very visible. It wasn't just going on that way. So we, I think, people began to think, well, you know, this is a theoretical there. curiosity, yeah. like a Giffen good, right? Yeah. I think <laughs> like I, we know we know about it on we know about it on the blackboard, but we don't see it in real life. Yeah, I think that was. Uh, I think starting in the, around the the nineteen eighties, I think uh, thoughtful folks realized it was going on and and just wondered about the magnitude of it. And I think. Um, I think the fundamental question, and we'll close with this, we're going over time anyway, but it's so interesting, and I really appreciate it. It's fascinating to me. You know, regardless of what these magnitudes are, whether it's a million, two million, one million, you know, everybody can, different people can make their own assessments of whether this is, quote, worth it, um, and whether that policy should try to stop it, or et cetera. In a country of 330 million, it's very hard to weigh small gains at a point in time versus big losses and it's a concentrated group. And there's a lot of complicated philosophical issues there. Let's put those to the side. I think what remains to be, what what remains true is that people who struggle with the educational system as it's currently constructed are going to have a tough time for a long time, again, regardless of what we do with trade. And so I'm just curious if you have any thoughts. You know, the standard economist answer to these problems, oh, we just need to compensate them. Well, first of all, they don't want compensation. They they want right. a job. They want meaning in their life. Right. They don't want to. They don't want to be on welfare. They don't want to be on disability. I don't right. think that's anybody's. Very few people's no. first choice. They want a life of Absolutely meaning not. and contribution and productivity. Um, right. What are your thoughts on how we get there from here? Well, I, I think there. You know, it's always going to be. There's always going to be two things you're going to have to do simultaneously. One is going to be investing in people to create opportunities. That means you know K through twelve education. That means college, but it also means better vocational training systems. Something that there are many countries that do better than the U.S. in terms of making very skilled blue-collar workers who have long careers in Germany and Austria and Sweden. Uh, and then, of course, we're also going to have to have social insurance programs that, you know, because not everyone's going to win. Uh, and, you know, we should, you know, my opinion, should have uh, readily available uh, health care. We should have, uh, you know, even uh, kids who don't have, who have misfortunate parents should still go to very good schools uh, and live in safe neighborhoods. Um, and, of course, we should invest in the infrastructure that allows, you know, more manufacturing to occur here. It's not, you know, manufacturing is growing in the United States again. It's much less labor intensive, but we do have relatively low wages, low energy prices, and pretty good infrastructure. <laughs> uh, not what it should be, but there are ways we can we can invest to increase those opportunities. So I think, you know, over the long run, it has to be about people's skills, 
But in the medium run, it also has to be about, uh, you know, social assistance, uh, and, uh, investments, some of them which may not have high rates of return viewed in, you know, the, in the rawest terms, but might have high returns if you think that having people gainfully employed is itself a good. Uh, and it also makes you think about how quickly you want adjustments to occur. So even if, you know, we agree we should have, you know, no trade barriers, we might say, well, we don't want to, if we have a 25% tariff on light cars and trucks, maybe we don't want that to go to zero overnight. Maybe we want it to go to zero over a 10 year period or something, right? So I think the speed of adjustment really does matter, especially because, you know, people have finite careers, right? So if I'm 55 and you tell me that, you know, my auto job won't exist 10 years from now, I'm not that upset about that. Uh, so, you know, the rate at which things change uh, affects how disruptive they are, even if you're going to the exact same place. My guest today has been David Otter of MIT. With co-authors, he's written a series of very interesting papers on China, which are parts of which are inaccessible to the non-specialists, but parts of them are very readable. And uh, if you enjoyed the back and forth and the economic ideas that we're talking about, I think you'll find Paper papers useful, and we will put links to them up on the web our website. David, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks very much. It was a complete pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.